This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm Talib Vizram, and this is World Changing Ideas from Fast Company Magazine. This week, we're going to look at a decades-long blame game and then find out about a recent ruling that could change the way companies operate when it comes to climate change. We know that corporations have known about their role in climate change for a while. When we talked with Jeff Beer a few weeks ago, he alluded to an ad that beverage and packaging companies created to sneakily place the blame on individuals instead of corporations. So today we wanted to explore that dynamic a little bit more. And here to help discuss it is Fast Company staff editor, Kristen Toussaint. Hey, Kristen. Hey, Talon. So let's dive in. Going back to the 80s, which I can't believe is four decades ago now, uh, companies like Exxon were fully aware of their greenhouse gas emissions. So tell us what happened back then that brought fossil fuels into the public consciousness to little avail. Companies have known about climate change for a long time. Uh, there's a record that this appeared on Exxon's radar you know, as early as 1981 in an email. And there's also some reports that their internal scientists were looking at this even back in the 70s. And two years prior to that 1981 email, a group of scientists came together and created what they called the Charney Report, uh, which looked at the effects of these rising amounts of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. And that report correctly predicted how more CO2 in the atmosphere would lead to more warming. A few years after that, in 1988, NASA scientist James Hansen testified before Congress about how the greenhouse gas effect has been detected and is changing our climate now. And the news coverage of that testimony really mirrors a lot of headlines we're seeing today. You know, when the New York Times covered that, their headline pointed out scientists were calling for a sharp cut in the burning of fossil fuels. So it's a plea these scientists have been making for decades, and they've clearly been warning about what would happen if we didn't follow through. And based on the state of things now, we obviously didn't heed that warning. Kristen, what's the role of government here? How have political leaders also enabled our ongoing reliance on oil and gas? Governments and corporations are totally tied up together in this continued use of fossil fuels. Corporations have spent years and millions of dollars lobbying against climate change solutions proposed by governments, ones that would you know, limit our use of fossil fuels. One example from 2018, BP donated $13 million to fight a ballot measure that would have created the nation's first carbon tax in Washington state. So it's wow. really this inaction from both companies and politicians together that have you know, stopped these policies from taking place, stopped these regulations, and really kept fossil fuels as, you know, as Anthony Leiserwitz, the director of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication told me, kept these fossil fuels as the lifeblood of our modern civilization. You know, they're still in everything we do. They're in our clothes, in our food, in our transportation systems. And that's really the fault of politicians and, and corporations working together. Yeah, it's scary to think how, how abundant they are. So with so much political influence and, and money involved, doesn't it kind of make sense when people check out and say, you know, what can I do as, as the average Joe, as, as the small fries over here? Kristen, you wrote an article about this where you pointed out that companies are responsible for 70% of emissions. So tell us why that particular statistic interested you. If you've spent 
Pretty much any time online, I think you run into people throwing out this statistic that, you know, 100 companies are responsible for 70% for of emissions. And it's usually used as this sort of rebuttal against someone suggesting individual action or, you know, lifestyle change that you could take for the climate. People just point to this and say, you know, what can we do if 100 companies are causing 70% of emissions? And I totally understand and agree that, you know, one person taking one action can't course correct for the whole planet. But what the framing of that statistic does as, you know, we can't do anything because it's all on these companies, it misconstrues the data behind that stat. So the fact is that that statistic includes scope three emissions, which are any emissions that come from up and down a company's value chain, which basically means that it's the emissions that come from all of us using and consuming the things that these companies produce. So in that statistic of, you know, 100 companies producing 70% of emissions, on that list are, you know, many oil and gas companies. And the vast majority of their emissions come from the use of their product, you know, which involves people filling up their cars with gas. So if these companies were to truly reach zero emissions, if they were to stop producing emissions and stop their reliance on fossil fuels, it's not in a silo of just the companies making change and then we're untouched. It means that our entire lives would look different. It would mean that we've reshaped huge swaths of our economy, uh, like transportation and shipping. And it would mean that our day-to-day -day actions in our lives would look different. So there's no future in which our individual actions don't change if we want to reduce those emissions. You know, we can't keep driving as much, eating as much meat, participating in these systems that, that use up resources to this extent. So I think what's frustrating about that statistic is that it sort of erases that, you know, it erases that our individual lives do have to change if we want a future where these companies stop producing those emissions. And another thing that I spoke to with experts for this article is that, you know, it's not an either or, it's not focusing on just making individual changes or just calling on these companies to make change, it has to really be about both because systems change and individual change are just tied up together. And if we want to make any big system change, you know, individual actions are at the root of all of that. I spoke to climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe. She wrote this book called Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. And one thing she pointed out to me, you know, is what is a corporation made up of other than people? And it's the same with government, you know, at the bottom of everything, um, it's people at the root of these systems that need to change. Right. And the thing is, there does seem to be demand for change, right? You know, a, a recent survey um, showed that a record high 70% of Americans are now very or somewhat concerned about global warming. So why isn't there more pressure to change our energy policies? Yeah, people are definitely concerned about this and paying attention to this and wanting to see changes on all of this. When the Yale program on climate change communication followed up to ask these people, you know, who are now very concerned about global warming, why it is that they aren't, you know, taking action or, or pressuring for change, the dominant answer was really that people just didn't know what to do. They didn't know which companies to reward and which ones to punish. Consumers feel really trapped, especially with, you know, the prominence of greenwashing and every company saying that they're good for the environment. You know, how are consumers supposed to decode all of that information? It takes a lot of work and a lot of knowledge. So this is where 
these environmental and consumer advocacy groups can really step up and be a resource and do that work of you know, naming, blaming, and shaming the bad companies so that consumers have that information in order to make these decisions. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. So going back to the role that politicians and political systems play in all of this, sometimes people don't feel as if their votes are making much of a difference, right? How can they address that? I think it's so true that we can feel like our voices aren't being heard and that, you know, one vote doesn't make that much of a difference. But there's this middle ground, you know, as Anthony Leiserwitz told me, between individual action and the giant system action of the government and policymakers. And that middle ground is in organizing, you know, coming together, working with other people and doing this sort of collective and community action that can make a difference beyond yourself. So you can do things in your own household and to your own life for the climate, like, you know, reducing your food waste or something he kept stressing to me was, you know, insulating your attic that has a big effect on your homes, you know, heating bills and energy use and stuff like that. But you can also work with others to demand changes that go beyond your own home or your own life. And that's really where systemic change and system change can start to happen. I think when we think about voting and, and our vote not making a difference, it's because we're focused on this really broad uh, federal action, right? We think the vote that matters is who's for president. And out of everyone in the country, you know, how could our vote make a difference in that? But Catherine Hayhoe was talking to me about the importance of not neglecting your own local decision makers. These states and on the city level, these local politicians can enact policies, can make a lot of change, and then that change can spread. And so starting small like that is, is really where you can have some influence. I think when we think of activism, we think of it as something that takes a lot of work and a lot of energy, and you have to be this activist all the time. But, you know, as Leiserwitz was telling me, we can expand our notion of, of activism. Anyone can be an activist and make changes within their own sphere of influence. So even if you're not someone who would join the Citizens Climate Lobby, you can talk to your coworkers about, you know, swapping out your office's fluorescent lights and then maybe change will spread from there. I guess that after decades and decades of hearing from corporations that it's all up to individuals to take action, People are understandably frustrated and fatigued by that narrative, right? Definitely. And I totally understand that, you know, these corporations have have been at the root cause of all of this, and yet they're turning around and they're coming up with terms like your personal carbon footprint, you know, to put the onus on us. Hmm. But I think that falling prey to that could also fuel some sort of, you know, climate nihilism that that we can't do anything. And if you're frustrated, there's still actions you can take. You know, your choices matter beyond your own personal life. We don't have the infrastructure and the mandates yet from government to say, ban gas stoves in every building. That's been popping up in some cities, but we're not there completely. So in the absence of that, we all still have a choice the next time we replace our stove or, or anything in our own homes to choose the least carbon emitting option. So great, there are things that we can do, you know, concrete actions we can take, but there are limits to what we can do, right? Definitely. Not everyone is in the same position to 
to make these changes themselves. You know, electric cars and solar panels for your own roof, these are all still really expensive. So that's why a system-wide change is needed too, you know, because our purchasing decisions and our lifestyle decisions don't happen in this vacuum. They happen because of the systems that we live in. So, you know, at the bottom of it, it's really that this individual versus system action conversation is a false binary. And a lot of experts talking to me about this also emphasize the need to, to not be perfect now. You know, like we were saying before, it's, it's frustrating to feel like the onus is all on individuals and that can really burn people out from this and then they feel like they're not doing enough. But we don't need to be perfect now, you know? And, and all these experts who spoke to me said to not let perfect be the enemy of the good when it comes to climate action and, and making these decisions in your own life and to not obsess over your own environmental sins. But every action we do take, you know, can, can still make these small progressions. Great, so the guidance really is kind of take the stress off a little bit and start small. Kristen, we'd be a little bit remiss if we didn't also talk about the latest proposed rule by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Can you explain that for us? Yeah. So there is this new landmark rule proposed by the Securities and Exchange Commission that would make it mandatory for all publicly traded businesses to publish standardized reports of their emissions and their climate risk for the first time. So right now, companies don't have to report that? No, the vast majority of public companies in the U.S. don't voluntarily disclose this information, you know, like on their greenhouse gas emissions. Fewer than a third of the public companies in the U.S. actually voluntarily close this emissions data now. Huh. And even when they do, not all of that data is reported on the same way. So that makes it really difficult to compare practices between emissions and to really see, you know, who's responsible for, for the most emissions and who is facing the biggest risks from climate change. So this new rule from the SEC would require that all public companies report on their direct emissions, as well as emissions from their energy use, and that they would need to have those numbers vetted by independent auditors. And that also they would have to report on those indirect scope three emissions that we mentioned before, those emissions that come from uh, up and down their supply chain and their value chain, which are often the greatest source of emissions for, for these companies. So. You did mention your scope three emissions earlier, but why are they significant? Yeah, scope three emissions, you know, like we've said, they come from up and down a company's value change. So it's not everything directly that a company is doing, but but how we're using their products, how those products get sent and, and shipped. There was a report recently from this nonprofit called As You Sow that looked at 55 of the biggest U.S. companies and how they're meeting their net zero goals. And only two companies, Apple and Microsoft, even have goals to reduce their scope three emissions in line with the 1.5 degree future. So it's really, really important that companies consider these scope three emissions. It's a little difficult to understand, I guess, how much they actually make up. But if you look at Chevron, for example, scope three emissions account for 91% of the company's greenhouse gas emissions. So if Chevron only focused on reducing scope one and two, uh, those reductions would only represent about 9% of the company's total emissions. And to just explain what scope one and two are, you know, they come directly from a company's operations and the energy used to power those operations. So that's scope one and two, and then scope three is everything else in a company's value chain, um, including how the consumers use the product. Okay, so they found a way to kind of uh jump through the hoops and gloss over some of the some of the things that they're not doing. 
Exactly. And most corporations are falling short when it comes to to all of those metrics, disclosing their entire emissions, announcing targets for emissions, and then following through with actual performance. And when might all this go into effect? So a public comment period uh, began on March 21st. That gave the public 60 days to comment on the proposed rule. And from there, the agency will vote on a final version within the next several months. If enacted as is, large companies would have to start disclosing climate risks next year, followed by their emissions data in 2024, while smaller companies would get an extra year. Well, it looks like the blame game has not subsided yet. So we'll have to see how the relationship between corporations and individuals continues to play out while we start to take some actions ourselves. Thanks for coming on the show, Kristen. Thanks, Talib. That's all for our show today. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to World Changing Ideas wherever you find your podcasts. If you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Avery Miles. Fast Company podcasts are produced by Franz Bowen, Avery Miles, and Blake Odom. Editing and sound design by Nicholas Torres. Executive producer is Joshua Christensen. Editorial oversight from Deputy Editor Kate Davis and Senior VP of Entertainment Scott Meebus. Scott Meebus.